Psalm chapter 9. Hear now again the words of the living God. It's to the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higayon Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, we... We are thankful for this opportunity to be able to hear your word to us. Lord, I pray that we would learn to sing about your justice. That you will open our eyes to see your holiness even this morning. Those who do not know you, that you will soften their hearts and draw them to Christ. That they might be saved. And for your children, that we will learn to trust your judgments. That they are good and that they are just. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are busy with a series called Psalms for the Anxious. Initially, when I, we started the series, we had the coronavirus and the Delta variant and our economy to be anxious about. But in the past week, our reasons for anxiety only increased dramatically. Whole malls were burned down, shops looted, senseless violence where countless people have died. Is what we have been seeing in the past few weeks. And I've heard somewhere, I don't know how accurate this is, but I've heard somewhere that it will take about 20 years before our country will recover to where we were before the riots and the looting. So to give you a perspective on that is if Alakai, my newborn baby, or not new newborn, but my baby, is 20 years old, then we will be where we were before last week. <laughs> then we will be back to where we were and we were already in trouble. So I want to just start off and remind you and say, don't forget the first two psalms that we've already looked at. Those psalms you must use to battle anxiety and fear. Psalm 131 reminds us, 
We are not God. We should not worry about things that only God can do. He alone can do marvelous things. Marvelous works belongs to him and our responsibility is to calm and quiet our souls before God. Psalm 121 reminds us that the journey is dangerous, that the end destination is far. But our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth and therefore he will surely keep us. He loves us. But this morning, we need, you and I, we need the theology of Psalm 9 about God's holiness, God's justice, God's judgments. The main point of the psalm is crystal clear. Have you noticed the word that comes up over and over again? David praises and he prays to the God of justice who judges the wicked and secondly saves the oppressed. Notice in verse 4. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Look at verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Look at verse 12. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted. Look at verse 16. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. You see that? Look at verse 19 to 20. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is David's God. He is just, he is sovereign, and he is sat, he's sitting on the throne giving righteous judgment. He sees all the innocent blood that is being spilt on this earth. He sees it all, and he will avenge. When Jesus comes again, he will execute holy judgment on everyone, and that includes you. This is really the, the other side, other side of the coin of the gospel. Believers, generally, I've noticed we do very well with the grace of God, with the mercy of God, with the forgiveness of God and the love of God. But none of those attributes are amazing or make sense without the holiness of God or the justice of God. Believers don't know what to do with God's justice, with God's judgments. And because we have abandoned, largely in, in many of our churches, we've abandoned this crucial attribute of God's justice, holiness, and judgments, we have no capacity as believers to deal with large-scale sin, with massive injustice, with horrific disasters. We don't know what to do with these things because we have forgotten that our God is just. So Psalm 9 is really a psalm for the anxious, for the anxious soul over other people's sins. Will their sin destroy me? Will their sin be fatal to my life? Will what ha will happen to the poor and the oppressed because of what will happen to the poor and the oppressed because of their sin? And David answers, God will judge and he will save the oppressed. This is our God. And here we'll see two responses to the God of justice number one praise god praising the god of justice and number two pray to the god of justice so praising god and praying to the god who is just and this morning we're only going to look at the first 12 verses together we're not going to look at the whole psalm together we're only going to look at the first point we should praise the god of justice and then next week lord willing we'll do praying to the god of justice so Verses 1 to 12 shows us that we need to praise the God of justice. 
First, we see David's personal example of praising God. And we can learn from this. Look at verses 1 to 2. David says, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now here we can learn two lessons from David's example of praise. First we learn that our praise to God must come from our hearts. Our praise to God must come from our hearts. Notice verse 1 again. Verse 1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Look at verse 2. I will be what? Glad and exult in you. So the only worship that is pleasing to God is heart worship. Remember John 4, 24? God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When we approach God, our hearts must come with us. We cannot approach God and leave our hearts behind or our hearts in some other place. That is because whenever we sing or pray to God, He sees us. He, he sees our hearts before Him. He knows us. Pro Proverbs 15 verse 11, Sheol and Ab Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. Every single one of you that's listening to me right now, God sees your heart. Your heart is exposed to Him. You cannot hide it from Him. That is why it's really foolish to try to impress God with your prayers or with many words like Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That's actually a very freeing thing. You don't have to try to impress God with words because He sees your heart. Just pray what's in your heart. To have our hearts in our worship means to be undistracted in our worship. Perhaps an illustration will help to understand this point. For me as a parent, it's easy to play with Jordan, my two-year-old toddler, without my heart in it. I can play, but my eyes never meet his eyes. My eyes are always seeing, looking at other things. My head is constantly turning towards my phone and what I need to do afterwards. And so my eyes sometimes are on the phone while I'm trying to play with him. Or I'm playing with him, but I'm more irritated with the fact that I have to play with him instead of that I can do what I want to do, that I want to do what I want to do. I might be simulating spending time with my son, but when my heart is not in it, he knows it. He knows the difference. Children get it. They, they realize when we are half-heartedly engaged with them. And that doesn't really please them, <laughs> if you have noticed. And it's the same with the Lord. We must praise God with our whole heart. We mustn't come to God irritated that we have to come to God because we actually want to do something else. No, we should come to Him with our whole undivided attention our concentration must be on him as we sing the songs we sing our concentration must be on him and not on something else listen to me so important is your heart to god that without it he doesn't accept anything you do so important is your heart to god that without it nothing is important nothing god doesn't regard anything else you do matthew 15 verse 8 this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then it says, in vain 
Do they worship me? Teaching us doctrines and commandments of men. Think of 1 Corinthians 13. If you give up your whole body to be burned, if you give away all your possessions, if you speak in the tongues of angels, if you do all these things and you don't have love, you're just, you're just making a noise. You, you gain nothing without love. So that's why it's so important that our worship, we must come and praise the God who is just from our hearts. That's the first lesson we can learn from David's example. We must praise God from our hearts and not just with our lips. But the second lesson we can learn from David's example of praise is that our praise is kindled by God's past faithfulness. Our praise is kindled by God's past faithfulness. Notice what he does in verse 1. Notice what he does in verse 1. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will what? Recount all of your wonderful deeds. Okay. David is looking back and he's recounting how God has been wonderful, how God has been faithful. And as he looks back over his life and in this psalm, a recent victory that God has granted him over the, his enemies, David cannot help but to burst out into singing with joyful thanks and joyful praise to the God of justice. Now here we have a wonderful help and aid to lukewarm Christians, to Christians that have very small embers of love and passion for God is do this. Meditate on God's past faithfulness. Now we have two things we can meditate on. First, we have biblical history. We have biblical history to meditate on. And then we have personal history to thank God for. When we look back over biblical history, we see the silver thread of God's sovereignty, his complete and utter faithfulness, and his undeserved grace to unworthy sinners. There's this phrase in the Old Testament that I really like. It says, not one word from the mouth of God has fallen to the ground. Not one word. In other words, every single promise of God has been fulfilled without touching the ground. So the falling to the ground is, is, is a picture of wasted words. Words spoken and all it did was fall to the ground and it did nothing. None of God's words are like that. Every single word that comes from the mouth of God will and was fulfilled. None of God's words are wasted. <laughs> then we look to Christ. Look to Christ and we see we stand in awe of how he's fulfilling scripture, the Old Testament. Matthew's gospel for his Jewish audience has this repeated phrase over and over again. It is what? Fulfilled. <laughs> To show that he is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. And in him, all of God's promises find their yes and their amen. Beloved, if you would just take time on this, just the first point. If you just reflect on biblical history, you will have ample reasons to praise God. You won't lack wood on the fire of worship to have a warm heart for God over all his faithfulness, over, over how he has turned evil for good over and over again, how he saves his people, how he judges the wicked, how God is faithful. But we also have a second thing we can help that can help us in our meditation and to aid in our worship is personal history. So not just we sh should we look at biblical history, we should also look at our personal lives. And this, is, in fact, is the main reason that kindled David's prayer here. David has experienced a recent victory in battle 
and he praises God for his judgment and his salvation. Beloved, every act of God's kindness and faithfulness to you should be like a pillar, a reminder that God is good. Every act of faithfulness in the past should be like another log on the fire to worship God. Look back over your life. Do you remember how you came to Christ? Do you remember how the gospel was brought to you? Maybe by faithful parents or a faithful friend or a church. Or Do you remember how the gospel came to you? And how God opened your eyes to see Christ in his glory? Praise God for his faithfulness to you. That is grace. The same God who said, let there be light in Genesis 1 said, let there be light in your heart. He opened your eyes. Can you see God's practical provisions for you in your life as you look back over your life? Where are you right now? God placed you there in his faithfulness. Look over the events of your life. Did you sleep in a bed last night? Did you have a warm bed last night? Did you have a warm cup of coffee this morning, <laughs> enjoying that, or last night, or whenever? That is God's faithfulness to you. That is God's grace. Does God not always treat us better than what we deserve? Always. Praise God for the life you have right now. You might say, but what about the bad events? What about the bad his personal history that I had? How can I... Think of that in the light of God's sovereignty and his goodness. Well, do you remember how God worked it for good? Do you remember his promise that he says all things were together for good, even the sufferings? And the sufferings comes to you by God's plan and his purpose and his will and his goodness to you? Do you see that God as your faithful father disciplines you as he does everyone whom he loves? So when God allows bad things to happen, it's his discipline to make us more like Christ. Listen to this psalm. Psalm 119 verse 67 and 71. It says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. How often does that happen? Before affliction, we went astray. But when affliction came, now we keep God's word. Or it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The psalmist says, I thank God even for my afflictions, for they brought me nearer to my God. They humbled me. They showed me my sin. They showed me I need a savior. Beloved, I can go on, but there are literally countless, countless of reasons to praise God for his past faithfulness to you. Always. So do you see what is one of our main problems? Why we cannot or do not praise God? We forget. Right? We forget. We don't recount the wonderful deeds that God has done. Like Israel in the wilderness, God could have literally just opened the sea in front of our eyes, drowned the Egyptian army behind us, and the moment we look at a desert, we say, God hates us. <laughs> the moment we looked at a desert, it says, where's the water? Where is the bread? And like Israel, we murmur and we complain over the future, over what we see right in front of us. Like Israel, we are prone to forget, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Remember what Jesus did and said with the disciples in the boat? He was in the boat sleeping and the disciples were in a raging storm. And what the disciples said must have hurt because they said to Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? 
What an accusation to the one that came down from heaven to save them from eternity in hell. Do you not care? And when after Jesus calmed the storm, remember what he said? Oh, you of little faith. This is one of the great reasons why God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness in Romans chapter 1. Do you know what's one of the main sins that provokes God's wrath over unbelievers? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's how important thanksgiving is for God. If we do not do it, we say that God is evil. We say that we deserve better than what we have been treated. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Beloved, that's what we need to praise God properly. We need to praise him from our hearts. True joy, true thankfulness. As we recount the wonderful deeds of God. As we look back over biblical history as well as personal history and see God's hand in it all. And that should provoke our joyful praise in our hearts. That was David's example of praise. But now we'll see that we need to praise God. So David has shown us an example, how he praises God. But now from verses 3, David is going to call and draw us into his God, the God of justice, and says that we must do the same as he has done. We must praise the God of justice. Look at verse 3. David now expands on his praise. He says, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. So the picture here is one of a recent battle which David had won. In the victory, it's very common for enemies to just flee, run away, to turn back and go away from the, the fight, trying to save their lives. And David says, that doesn't work. It's futile. As they turn back, they stumble and they perish before your presence. They can flee from David, but they cannot flee from God. <laughs> they can flee from David, but they cannot escape the God who is omnipresent. It's before his presence that they perish. Because God is everywhere. Now this part of God's, this is part of God's holy rule. Because he is just. Look at verses 4 to 6. It says, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. The cities you rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. So David, in a poetic way, says that after God has judged the wicked, there's nothing left. He says they are forgotten forever. At the end of verse 5, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. Look at the end of verse 6. The very memory of them has perished. And this contrasts with God beautifully in verses 7 to 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. You see the contrast between the wicked and God? It says, the wicked perish forever and ever, but God sits enthroned forever and ever. This is a great comfort for believers. Think of all the, the great terrorists of the past. Think of all the, the wicked rulers in the past. Where are they? They're dead. <laughs> They're in the grave. Who, who is still on the throne today? God. Long after the worst of the wicked rulers have died, God will still be God and God will still be on his throne. And his justice is unbending, eternal, like the mountains, stable, fixed 
and unchanging. So in this psalm, in this, these verses, we see the seed of which the Bible will later grow into full bloom. That is the doctrine of eternal conscious torment in hell. That is, this is the doctrine of hell. We see that when it says, they, you have ruined them forever and ever. You've blotted out their names. It says, they've come to everlasting ruins. This is the seed of what the Bible will later explain as eternal conscious torment in hell. Beloved, hell is there for a reason. Hell is just. Hell is an eternity of experiencing God in his full wrath and his holy anger over sinners who did not repent and come to Christ. When God sends someone to hell for all of eternity, he's giving them perfect justice. Because notice what verse 8 says. He judges the world how? With righteousness. And he judges the peoples with uprightness. God, the punishment fits the crime. So hell sobers us into the sinfulness of sin, of how sinful sin is, how awful sin really is. If you might be hearing the, the doctrine of the eternity of hell, and you, might, and you feel tempted to feel and to think, that seems unfair. If you're tempted with that thought, that that seems not right for God to do that, that shows that you don't understand the holiness of God or the sinfulness of sin. You don't understand how awful sin is and how holy God is. It's normally when, when we struggle with this doctrine of eternity in hell, we put God lower and we put man higher. God is not so holy and man isn't that evil to deserve an eternity in hell. But remember, God is the just judge. In the words of Abraham in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He will always do what is just. Now that means that when God punishes, the punishment fits the crime. He will not punish more severely than what people deserve. And he will not punish less than what we deserve. Everyone in this universe will receive perfect justice from the God who is just. Now think with me. When God will cast people into an eternity of pain, torture, suffering for all of eternity without end, the Bible says that is just. The punishment fits the crime. That is how awful and how despicable and how evil our sin really is before God. God hates our sin with an intense hatred. Do you want further proof? Look to the cross of Christ. There we see a perfect picture of God's holy anger, his holy hatred of sin. God is so holy, even when Christ bore our sin, his own son, the son whom he loved from all of eternity. When God saw sin in his son or on his son on the cross, God separated from him. God poured out his wrath on his son. God judged him. God did not even spare his son when he saw sin. In other words, God didn't say, well, because you're my son, because I loved you from all of eternity, even though I see that you are carrying the sin of the world on you, I will spare you because I love you. 
For you, my son, I will make an exception. No, God didn't spare his son. God's justice is unbending. He cannot change. God cannot and will not tolerate even one sin. All must be punished for him to be perfectly holy and perfectly good. But do you see how quickly God's holiness and goodness and justice becomes bad news for us about, without Christ? If God will punish all sin with an unbending justice, that includes all your sin too. Who can stand before this God? Who can escape from the wrath to come? Answer, look to the same cross where his wrath and his justice was revealed. There you will not just see God's holy hatred of sin, but his holy love for sinners. The same cross shows us God's amazing love. It is holy love because it's not like our love. Think about what God did on the cross. God's love is the happiness of his enemies at infinite cost to himself. God gave his son. It's an infinite cost for people that deserve only infinite wrath. It's a love we cannot comprehend. But it is true. Those who are in Christ are safe from God's judgments. Because in Christ all our sins have already been paid, already been judged fully on the cross. Now that humbles us. That humbles us. It says we are just as worthy of an eternal death. In hell, as the people who looted, burned the malls, and destroyed people's lives. We are just as worthy of going to hell as they are. I'm not saying that all sin are equal. I do not think that I, I've changed my mind over that, that view. The Bible is clear that there are certain sins that are worse than others. Jesus said to Pilate in John 19, that he who delivered you, me over to you has the greater sin. So there is levels of severity of sins. Um, murdering is worse than gossiping. Can we agree to that? But what I am saying is that unless God has been gracious to us, we would be doing the very same things that we see in other people. We would be guilty of the same sins that we see on Facebook and on the news. Beloved, Christ crucified is both our justice, but also our unshakable confidence that God loves us. It's our confidence that God will punish every sin. And it's our confidence that we will be spared by his grace through Christ. David doesn't just mention God's justice, but shows that believers can find refuge in God's justice. Look at verse 9 to 10. 9 to 10 says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The meaning here is very beautiful. In the act of God's justice, as God judges the wicked, simultaneously he saves the oppressed. They are one and the same act. To give an illustration, when a U.S. Marine or Marines storm into a building with terrorists holding hostages, if they shoot the, te the terrorist in order to save the hostages, that one act did two things at the same time. It was judgment on the terrorist, and at the very same time, it was salvation for the oppressed. It wasn't two acts, it was one act. And that's the meaning here as well. As God judges the wicked, he simultaneously saves the oppressed and saves those who are being oppressed by the wicked. It's one and the same act by God. And again, the cross is the supreme example of this. The same act 
of how God will punish his son is the very same act that saves us from our sin. At the cross, God's judgment and his salvation meet and are united in Christ. So David is celebrating the God of justice as a God of refuge for those who know him, trust him, and seek him. Have you noticed the order in verse 10? What comes first? Knowing God or trusting God? Notice in verse 10, it says, Those who know your name put their trust in you. Did you see that? Those who know your name, they are the ones who put their trust in you. In other words, knowing God comes before trusting God. Someone who doesn't know God cannot trust him. You cannot trust a stranger. You cannot trust someone you've never seen, you've never met. You cannot. Beloved, it's the same with us. And I think here we need to test ourselves. Do you really know God? Do you know him through faith in Christ and in personal communion with God? Well, to know God includes at least three elements. Number one, intellectual knowledge. You need to at least know the true facts about God, that God is holy, that God is good, that God is sovereign, that God is triune, that God is savior. You need to know these things. If you don't know them, you cannot trust him. You cannot know him truly. Number two, not just intellectual knowledge, but do you have experiential knowledge of God? This is to know God personally through his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It means first true conversion, the heart of stone being removed and the heart of flesh put in its place. It means to be born again by the Spirit so that you have new desires, new longings, new priorities, new goals in your life. The sins you once loved you now hate and the, the good you once hated you now love. It's a, it's a total transformation of the Holy Spirit within you. That's experiential knowledge of God as Savior and God as Lord and, and, and King. This also means knowing God through daily life. Have you seen and tasted that God is good? Have you experienced, not just know that He is good, but tasted and seen that He is good? Do you not just know that God is sovereign, but do you rest in His sovereignty as a pillow for your head and as a comfort for your soul? You don't just know that God is your Father, you relate to Him as your Father. That's what I mean by experiential knowledge. And number three, it also includes communion with God. Intellectual knowledge, experiential knowledge, but also communion with God. This is the daily time we spend with God to know Him more in His Word, in prayer. You don't just go through the motions, although that is what happens a lot to me and to others. But you long to truly know Him, to have communion with Him, to be one with Him, to become more like Christ. That's your longing because you, you, you love Him. Beloved, because the reason I'm telling you this is because it is possible to have the first type of knowledge, a lot of knowledge about God, but not to love God at all, not to know God at all. Remember, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not those who profess that are saved, but those who do the will of God, those who have a transformed life that shows as the evidence that they are saved. But, and then Jesus actually says to those people that, that said, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things for you? He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. So the question is, does God know you? Does God know your heart? Does God have communion with your heart? Does he know you? In the same way, beloved, don't just be content about knowledge about God. Seek to know God. Don't just be content to have a lot of knowledge about God, but seek experiential knowledge of God. 
That's the secret to trusting God. Because those who know your name put their trust in you. So maybe that's why you struggle to trust God. Is Maybe in that area you don't know God. But if you know him, you can trust him. Let me close with this. What should be our response to the God of justice? David in, invites us to join him in praising God in verse 11 to 12. It says, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. We should sing about God's justice. His his judgments, his goodness, his holiness. He will judge the wicked and he will save the oppressed. Notice something here. I love this. Verse 11 or verse 12. Who sits enthroned where? In Zion. So in verse 7, the Lord sits enthroned. It's, it's a heavenly enthronement. And here we see he's enthroned in Zion. God is Far above, highly exalted, and he is with us. Zion is the place of where the temple was. That's where Zion, the Mount Zion was. So David says, you are far above and you are with us. John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came all the way down to be with us. God became a man. So sing to God your Savior. Sing to God who is with us even until the end of the age. We must, verse um, 11 Tell among the peoples his deeds. We must share this holy God, this righteous God of ours, who is far above and he who is with us. We must tell people about his judgments that they might fear him, and then about his grace that people might repent and trust him. Even if our blood is spilt, notice in verse 12, he who avenges blood. He doesn't always spare us from dying, but he will avenge us. He will bring justice. He will never forget us. Again, the contrast is beautiful. The name of the wicked will be forgotten, but the cries of the righteous, of the afflicted, will never be forgotten by God. So, beloved, sing to God. Praise Him. That's the first half of the song. Sing to Him from your heart. Recount His faithful deeds. See God holy and enthroned for justice. On the cross, you see His justice, His mercy, His salvation combined. Let it make you fear God to realize that you are just as evil, just as worthy of hell than the people you see on a screen. And let it humble you to, to, to trust in Christ. Look to Christ. This is the way to be saved. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to what you can do. Turn away from your sins. Look to Christ, exalted on the cross. As you see the cross, there is your salvation. There Jesus paid for all your sins. So Cast yourselves on him and he will forgive you. Know him and that will lead you to trust him and to seek him. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. <laughs> He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. For your mercy, for your justice. Lord, your holiness that has once frightened us, your holiness that has one, once been our enemy because of our sin, is now our greatest comfort because Christ died for us. We can find refuge in Christ and so be confident of your holy judgments. Be confident that we would be spared of your 
the judgment to come because of Christ. Now, Lord, we don't fear you like the devil. We don't fear you by running away from you, but we fear you like a child fears his, his parents. We fear you by pursuing you, by trusting you, by loving you, for you provide all our needs and you are our shepherd. Thank you, Lord, that every evil deed that has been done on this earth will never be forgotten. It will either be punished on the cross or will be punished forever in hell, but it will be punished and we can rejoice in that, Lord, that that shows your goodness, that shows your holiness, that shows the awfulness of sin. Lord, I pray that we would have the same view of sin that, that you have, Help us to have a bigger view of you and a lower view of ourselves so that we might be humble and tremble before you in, in worshipful joy. Please, Lord, strengthen our hearts. Help us even in this day to sing to you and to praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray.